Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. Joining us on the BeyondTheMic.com star line is someone you need to know. She is a former Secret Service agent, forensic and clinical psychologist, adjunct professor, and now author of The Protector, a woman's journey from the Secret Service to guarding VIPs and working in some of the world's most dangerous places. Mary Beth Janke, welcome. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me. Let's go beyond the mic. MB, you grew up in a suburb of Park Ridge, Illinois. That is correct. You first started college at Indiana University. Did you ever think you would end up where you are today? Oh, gosh, no way. No, 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 no way. Yeah, no. Especially, Sean, because, and I even say this to my students because, you know, right now I'm extremely comfortable in front of large groups. If you were to ask me, say, five, ten years ago, if I was going to be this professor or public speaker, I would have laughed. I would have laughed you out the room. And, you know, you knowing a lot about my background, it makes sense in that my life as a protection agent and even an investigator was always in the shadows, not as a speaker, but more of an observer. So the contrast is pretty stark. I mean, it's it's pretty blatant. So when you were younger, were you more the wallflower? No, I was more, I was a loner, even though I'm one of seven kids, and my siblings said the same thing, was a loner. How would you describe yourself? I was friends with everybody, but sort of kept still to myself. I didn't join any one group. I am, was and still am uh, a good athlete, and so that was sort of my outlet. Uh, my whole family is, you know, we're all athletes, and I think that... My observation skills started because being one of seven kids, let me tell you about birth order. I am the fifth of five right in a row. So the first five of us are one year apart. And so and I'm the fifth. So imagine that there wasn't a tremendous amount of time for me. And I spent time observing my family, you know, more than interacting. And then there were two more after me, but several years. So I think that's really, you know, birth order really plays a a big role in where I am today. As the oldest of six, I feel your pain. Oh my gosh, okay, you get it. <laughs> you got your degree in criminal justice along with a minor in Spanish and spent some time in the University of Seville. Mm-hmm. How did that Euro stay traveling all over Europe change you? Ooh, tremendously. I really gained not just an appreciation for the Spanish language and culture and how it's so different from other Latin countries. I became this person that just found no, I had no apprehension going to any place where, whether it was, you know, back when the wall was still there between East and West Berlin. And even though it was a little intimidating, it was just like, well, I can do this. People do this. It's no big deal. And traveling by train, hitchhiking, bus, walking, anything, like nothing was impossible. And I think that really broadened my career as far as once you know, things started challenging me um, as a professional. It's like, well, I've overcome a lot already just as a student, as a traveler. I can do this as a professional. Now, you travel every summer with your college girlfriend, Maria, typically to Europe. How has (laughs) COVID-19 changed the way that you see travel in the future? Yeah, well, for the the very future that's right here, that's not going to happen, my summer trip. I had two of them planned to Europe, actually, one with my husband and one with my girlfriend. In the future, Sean, I think that's a great question. I I was just having a discussion yesterday with someone that goes, gosh, you know, even if they said in August that we could travel internationally, would you? And I feel like I would because I'm just that person that goes, well, you know, like I've been dying. I've, I've been dying to get on a plane and I 
I kind of feel like I'm that uh, fatalist of whatever's going to happen to me, wherever it's going to happen to me, it will. And not by sitting at my house, you know, for any longer than I have to. So the longer term of how this is going to affect travel, I think, remains to be seen. But the minute they say it's A-OK and we're OK to be gathered in public together, I will be one of the first on a plane. Talk to me about the emotional responses you have seen from your students as online learning has taken over traditional teaching. Next. Very mixed. For me personally and my students and me uh, in my class, it's very difficult because the way I conduct class is sort of the way you and I are talking right now. You know, like yesterday we were talking about schizophrenia spectrum. And it's so different to not interact with them in person and see people that seem confused or that have a question, you know, and I'll be like, oh, just give me a minute. Now it's all electronic where they're clicking a little icon that says raising my hand or they stick something in the chat box and it's sort of like almost like playing pinball it's like all these different things happening at once and although it's better than nothing I like at least that we're in person that's the way I've chosen to do class and it's recorded for students that can't make it that might be in different countries different time zones I think for them with other professors with overall what they're saying it's really kind of hard to motivate to do much because they're just sitting in their rooms all day you know, tapping in sometimes to classes and sometimes not because there's not really a way that, I mean, you can take attendance, but you really can't when you're dealing with so many different time zones slash countries. How do you see the future of education? Do you see the transition from a brick and mortar to more online education being standard? I think it depends on the student. I'm, you know, I am that person that believes in the in-person, just like I, even though I do teletherapy, I believe in the in-person experience to be more powerful and more impactful, but I can also respect a student that says, why would I be paying $58,000 to go to a university when I'm learning just as much virtually? So I think it really depends on the student. I think some people learn better in person and some people learn regardless of the mode. We're talking with author, former Secret Service agent, and professor Mary Beth Jenke beyond the mic. You've been in hot spots all around the world. Bombs blowing up, drugged up thugs. Now talk to me how you kept calm during all those stressful situations. You know, a car honks at me and my blood pressure starts rising. How do you keep a, such a steady heart rate? Is it like permanently at seven? Um, I can't guarantee you that in every one of those situations that my heart rate wasn't racing. I would say that there were, in every single one of those situations and beyond, that I did feel fear, that I sensed fear, that I knew it was danger, but that's what drove me, Sean. I love, that's my adrenaline, and I have this motto, never let him see sweat, and so it doesn't mean that afterwards I wasn't like, holy, you know what, like, what was that all about? But in the moment, I... <laughs> I sort of put emotion aside and problem solve. It's like, what's going on? What needs to be done? I have a protectee to save. I have my own life to save. And that, you know, a couple of cases, it's a group of people. How am I going to make that happen? Because it's also my own life on the line. Uh, and there's no way I'm not coming home tonight and sleeping in my own bed. Be that my own bed at home or in a hotel or rented apartment. Now, there are times when I'm like, I need a glass of wine or I need to go for a five-mile run because that was intense. Going to like debrief with a with a partner, a colleague, whoever. But sometimes I'm like, nah, just another day on the field, right? Like, you know. And then I just sort of a lot of times you have to do after action reports, so you sort of process it through that. 
as you deal with those stressful situations, how do you communicate or how do you not communicate to the ones you love? You can't say, hey, mom got shot at today. No big deal. I'm good. Because they would worry. Yeah. My mom, I would say at all, so it's the only person who ever at least vocalized their issue with my line of work with my mother. Really? You know, she told me that I was the reason for her premature gray hair. When I decided I, you know, I had gotten my degree in forensic psychology about 10 years out of undergrad, decided, you know, this is great. And then 9-11 happened and got back into the field, ended up in Bogota, Colombia. And after my first three-month contract, I was home visiting my parents and waiting for my next contract to be renewed. And my mom's outside with my dad and me, and we're having a glass of wine. And then I saw my mom get this serious look on her face, and she kind of clears her throat, and she's like, um, you're not going back to Bogota. And I swear, Sean, I almost spit my wine out. I was like, yes, I am. And it became sort of a little bit of a battle. And I said, Mom, like, I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm doing what I was trained to do. This is where I should be. And, you know, I can be hurt anywhere, she said, but you're putting yourself in harm's way by choice. I said, I know, Mom, but, you know, there were there are people that are killed, you know, in a farmer's market. There, you know, this, there was an incident that happened, Sean, shortly after I went to Bogota, and an 80-year-old man, instead of putting his foot on the brake, put it on the accelerator on a Saturday or Sunday farmer's market in Santa Monica, California, and killed eight people and injured dozens. And I said, well, Mom, I can die in a farmer's market on a Sunday being safe, quote-unquote, or I can die by being kidnapped and tortured in Bogota, but this is my choice, and this is where I believe I am, should be or I should be. What was the most important lesson you learned as a Secret Service agent? Keep your head down, uh, keep your nose clean, and do your darn job. When people talk about the term special agent, it's important. It really means something. What does the term special agent mean to you? Yeah, it is um, the creme of the creme. It's the people that got sifted through and sifted through and sifted through, weeded out, weeded out, weeded out, and then you know, picked for different skill sets. Um, you know, originally when I applied, they told me, oh, you should expect to wait two years because you had lived overseas and you traveled in all these countries. And they called me, called me about nine, ten months later. And it was a combination of being, one, a female, because they're very hard to keep us. You know, we have a very low percentage of federal agents, special agents that are females. Two, I was a Spanish speaker. And three, they were coming up on election year. They needed more bodies. So... Special agent for me was a dream. It's even when I meet them now, I'm like, you know, thank you for your service. It's a, it's an honorable position. Was there ever a mission? I mean, you've been known to say, "I'll do it, I'll do it." <laughs> but was there ever a mission when you went, "Nope, not gonna do it. I pass." Let me think about that. That's a great question. I think I almost said no to Haiti. Um, I ended up doing it, and that sort of was my kick me over the edge, uh, get out of the business for a while uh, and go back to grad school. But no, I don't think there's anyone because, you know, it's that kind of failure's not an option. Never let them choose, but you can do this. Like you can, you can prove it. You can do it. So I can't think of one. There might be one, but not that's coming to mind. We're talking with author of The Protector, a woman's journey from the Secret Service to guarding VIPs and working in some of the world's most dangerous places. Mary Beth Janke, Beyond the Mic. When you started writing the book, was it to tell some stories, release some demons, or was there something more deeper than that? When I started writing this book, 
my intention was to tell my story. And it was because a combination of things. Um, it was very cathartic. So maybe some demons were released, but that was not what I thought was going to happen. But I had had a reading with a woman who's sort of a spiritual guide. And she said to me, you know, about five times during the session, and at one point she stops the whole thing and she's like, listen to me, you need to, you need to write and you need to, to write a book. And she said, there, there's something you need to say and people need to hear it. And I just looked at her like, are you effing crazy? Like, I write a book? Like, no way. And uh, it took me a while to come around to it, right? And I finally started, um, you know, after I'd finished my postdoc and got my doctorate, like officially got my license and then just took some time off to travel. And I was like, you know what? It's time. It's time. I'm going to write. And I originally intended to write my entire story, meaning about my protection missions and my investigative missions. But I wrote so many um, pages about my protective missions that, you know, I may or may not write a second edition that's called The Investigator. I don't know. Uh, but that's kind of how that happened. And you are correct. It definitely was cathartic. I definitely processed a lot of stuff I didn't even know was there. So it was a really great, it was both arduous, but a really great experience for me. And it took about one year. What chapter in the book is the most important to you? I think for me, because it, well, it's for me my most proud chapter, but it might not resonate with other people, was the, was the chapter in Columbia, because it was really a position that you could not even imagine existed in the world of protection. And with just two other people, we had a massive multi-million dollar budget that we were managing and managing so well that a program that was supposed to only last one year, we ended up not only extending it three, but then because of that, got a whole bunch more millions um, to then open a trading academy. So I would say Columbia, probably the most dangerous as well. In all these pressure situations, all these places, danger hotspots around the world, you had to have your head on a swivel. Was there ever a place where you felt comfortable? Yeah. Um, more with the families I worked in Dallas and Sarasota because, yes, there's a threat, but the threat wasn't as, as, as obvious as, say, working in Haiti or Peru or Bogota. It's there because of the money that the family has and potential outside threats that really you don't necessarily know exist. Yes, you have people working in the background to do, you know, intel, to check out threats, et cetera, but for the most part, you're protecting a family that could be your own family. And um, it's a sort of a quote-unquote more normal lifestyle versus austere environments such as Bogota, Lima, Peru, Port-au-Prince, Haiti. So I would say in particular, Sarasota, because I'm a beach girl, and you give me a beach, I am elated. I get to run every day. Uh, Just that salt air makes me very comfortable. Have you ever ran a marathon, and what was your best time? I've only ever run one marathon, and it was what they call the People's Marathon. It was the Marine Corps Marathon in Washington, D.C. in 1994, and my time was four, uh, it was like a 10, it was exactly a 10-minute mile average, so nothing spectacular, but (laughs) I finished, (laughs) and I never stopped. Yeah, I just can't do it. (laughs) We all want to (laughs) finish. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. You've been a protector of the Bushes, the Versaces. How hard is it to be a protector of not only their person, but of their psychological and emotional well-being? It has to be a deep 
and responsible job to be the protector. It is. And you said something that I've never thought about before. As a psychologist, you are a protector of people's emotions and their emotional well-being. It's a lot of responsibility. Uh, I guess my thing is, okay, you know, what have you done for me lately? And it's that constant, I'm the hardest person on myself, and so I'm constantly demanding more and more. And if I feel like, oh, God, I don't know if I can ever do that, that means, you know what, I just said that out loud, that means I've got to do it. Sort of like, oh, I don't know if I'll ever get my doctorate, and then bam, you know, I ended up getting, you know, doing that five-year nightmare program that every year I was like, God, what am I doing, you know? And I just kept going, and I agree with you. It's, um, it, from the outside, it looks you know, maybe different from it being me, because to me, this is just what I do, you know, and I love it. And when I stop loving something, I move on to the next thing. And, you know, you asked me before what my next thing is, and I'm not 100% sure, but I'm damn well convinced it's going to be equally as exciting as my last chapters. When your heart is always racing, you're a type A personality. (laughs) Other than drink coffee and wine, Mm -hmm. what do you do to relax? I read. I watch um, programs, uh, you know, Netflix, Amazon. Um, I walk. I look at art. I whatever is out there. I like music. I like plays. I'll, you know, I, I yeah, I've already said I love to travel, but you know, on a daily basis, it's uh, a glass of wine at the end of the day, cooking, and okay, what, what are we going to watch? Or do you just want to sit around and chat? You know, with my husband. Um, so yeah, I would say we're pretty chill for you know having the backgrounds we have. Time is running out, so it's time for the Rocky Nate. It's the first thing that comes to your mind. No pressure. Okay. You are a former United States Secret Service agent, freelance protection agent, and investigator. Forensic psychology expert, personal protection instructor, self-esteem mentor, doctor of clinical psychology, psychology professor, and an author. So, with all that, what's your next challenge? Parlaying my book into working with young women and increasing their self-esteem. Which book of yours would people enjoy more? Inspire a cognitive behavioral therapy program to enhance self-esteem in emerging adult women or The Protector? Well, the first is my dissertation, which is, in essence, a book, and that would feed into how I would work with people via The Protector, because I think The Protector really brings out, you know, what one's self-esteem can do and how it can protect them amongst, you know, just in the world in general. You've traveled all over the world, but where is the one place where you wouldn't want to go back to ever again? Morocco. Gotta ask, since we know you like wine, what's your favorite bottle? Purple Angel. I'm hoping I can get a laugh out of this one. If 500 cows was too low, (laughs) what would it have been an appropriate dowry for you? 5,000, Sean. (laughs) I know you're going to give me the best Secret Service stare that you possibly can when I ask this question, but I'm going to make you pick one. Okay. Which one of the Bush grandchildren was your favorite? What's the first thing that you're going to do when the coronavirus pandemic ends? Travel on a plane. And finally, what's the name of your pot-bellied pig? Wilbur Babe. She was once offered 500 cows as a dowry. Ellie was her favorite Bushcan kid, and she would never, ever return to Morocco. Author of The Protector, a woman's journey from the Secret Service to guarding VIPs, and working in some of the world's most dangerous places, available at a retailer near you or online, Mary Beth Janke. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
Yeah, thank you for interviewing me. It's really fun. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic.